Loneliness is pervasive in our culture, and so many of us don't understand why. They go through life surrounded by people, yet feeling alone. Time spent with their loved ones leaves them feeling more lonely instead of filling that need for connection that each of us inherently has. If this sounds like you, know that you're not alone. Learning to connect is a skill and it requires vulnerability. But when you figure it out, loneliness won't have a place in your life anymore. Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, but it's also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Julie and Steve. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full there's no space left for alcohol. We want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. We know that looks different for everyone. This season can be a challenge in many ways, but we hope that your hearts are full and that you can find peace wherever you may be in your journey today. Well, hello everybody and welcome. It's good to see you guys. We are one short here tonight, but I think we're gonna hang just fine with these two. So. Um, both of them are returning guests. Really excited to have you guys both back. We're going to do introductions as per usual, and I'm going to go ahead and start with Dr. Andrew. How are you? Good, Julie. Thanks for, uh, thanks to you and Steve for having me back. I am Dr. Andrew. I'm, uh, I'm an emergency physician, uh, in New Hampshire. I've been physically sober from problematic substance misuse for almost six years now. So I, you know, started my journey thinking that I needed to figure out how not to drink or use drugs and quickly realized that those weren't the problems. Those were simply problematic solutions to some upstream thinking breakdowns and corresponding emotional states. And so if you, if you talk to me, you'll hear a lot about what I speak to as emotional sobriety and really understanding my thinking patterns and how they they give rise to emotional patterns and how those patterns can lead to certain types of behaviors. So I really focus on behaviors that are progressive and behaviors that will offer love and connection and, and help provide resolution and not dissolution. So. Absolutely. Really cool. Yeah. I think your whole philosophy is so aligned with what we do here on this podcast. It's just really nice to have you back and love what you do. And then also we have Travis back. How are you? Um, well, thanks, Julie, and thanks, uh, Steve, as well, for having me. I'm glad to be back. Stoked to be here. Um, my name is Travis. I'm a recovery coach professional, a recovery coach professional facilitator for the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, also widely known as CCAR. I am a lucky, very lucky person that I get to train recovery coaches every day for a living. Uh, it's Life is beautiful. It's taking me to a beautiful place. I identify as a person in mental health recovery, um, and really what that means to me is my recovery has been mental health-based. Uh, it's been about seven years since I made a choice to heal, and I really identify with uh, the recovery principles that we teach to our participants in all of our trainings, and it's just kind of, I naturally fell into it. So 
and I naturally fell into this this meeting here. So that's who I am, and uh, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for yeah, being thanks here. Thanks so much for being here. So yeah, we met Travis when Steve and I took recovery coach training um, almost a year ago. And I love, I, I feel like Dr. Andrew and Travis are so much aligned with the the emotional wellness and mental health recovery stuff. I'm just excited that you guys are here together. I feel like this is going to be an amazing conversation. In the same uh, space, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the universe just aligns and it brings the right people together on this podcast every single time. So I am just, I'm super excited about this. So for our topic today, as we start healing ourselves and moving through recovery, it becomes apparent for many of us that we have to start shedding the friendships that we held on to for years that were actually causing a lot of problems in our lives. The result is that for a lot of people, recovery can feel really lonely. And I don't think that stops in early recovery. I think there are just seasons of life that tend to feel lonely. So how has loneliness shown up in your life? And how have you learned to cope with it? What can you share with our listeners? You guys are welcome to have at it. Anybody can start. I'll, I'll take a stab. You know, when I first read this, and I'm, I'm actually going to, if you're okay with it, I'm going to speak to the the first part of what you were reading, which really had to do with the friendships or connections that I had when I got well. And what I realized early on is that a lot of those connections were enabling connections. Uh, individuals in my life who I had basically used to help keep me sick. And, and what I've also identified early on is that some of those people needed me sick. Some of those people needed me sick so that they could access what they needed to, which was maybe a rescuing phenomenon or whatnot. And so it was this, this codependence of sickness that was going on. And so my first couple of months of physical sobriety, you know, I really had to start looking at my behaviors and my connections and sparse out the ones that were like, I like to look at it as adaptive or maladaptive, you know, problematic relationships and those that, that might uh, help me heal. And so I, I had a, I had a few relationships that actually dissolved. That was tough. It was tough for, for both of us, you know, but it was necessary. It was necessary for me to get well. And once I got well, what was fascinating is this concept of loneliness wasn't there. You know, it's once I got well, I started attracting individuals that were like-minded and kind of developed my own tribe, so to speak, you know, my, 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 my group of, of, of recovery peeps that, that can, you know, help support me and not enable me that will love me and nurture me as I will them. And we will still do it in a manner that we're all growing and we're not keeping each other, each other sick. So, you know, when I read your, your, your statement, I was thinking, geez, loneliness, my loneliness was in the, the dark days of my obsession and my substance misuse, you know, and my loneliness was in the space that I had when I was younger, when I wasn't drinking alcoholically, but I was living into my thinking patterns of not good enough and all the other, you know, upstream mental health stuff. It was really the fuel for the fire that, that became a, a pretty problematic substance um, disorder down line. So, you know, that was lonely, you know, in recovery, if anything, I feel like I've actually learned how to connect with others and be vulnerable, which takes risk. You know, it's a risky thing to do. 
And in my, my experience, authenticity and vulnerability are really kind of, uh, um, it's a, it, 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 it attracts a, a group of people that are really just very special. Absolutely. So I, I love what you said there. And I'm I, like, it, it kind of resonates with a little bit of my story. I feel like I was so lonely when I was drinking, when I was, you know, deep in my addiction, I was surrounded by people. I was surrounded by friends. I was surrounded by family and it was the loneliest that I'd ever been. And then I quit drinking once prior to this, this stint of sobriety and I didn't connect with anybody. I didn't change anything in my life. I just stopped drinking and I had to start staying away from girls night and I had to start staying away from rodeos and like the things that our family did, right? I had to start avoiding them. And then I felt really, really lonely because what I was used to, which still was lonely, I just wasn't surrounded by people anymore. I was actually alone, like physically alone more. This second time around, there's really not any loneliness in my life anymore. And the difference is that now I'm showing up, like you said, vulnerably. I did so much digging and so much work to figure out who I really authentically am. Because forever I was showing up as who I thought everybody wanted me to be, right? So even if I did feel like we were having a great conversation, it wasn't me. It was like it was who I thought I was supposed to be. So showing up authentically and then connecting from that space has taken loneliness completely out of the picture in my life. I think that's just because I have the two different versions of like sobriety, I guess, to compare it to. It's the the authenticity and the vulnerability and all of the risk and the true connection that has changed everything for me when it comes to loneliness. And I, I can resonate with you too, Julie. Like I know for me in my recovery when when I and let me just stop there. So like my I was I, I talk about how I'm, I wasn't addicted to substances, right? Like substance use disorder isn't really part of my story, right? But I was addicted to people the 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 superficial relationships that i had with people whether substances were a part of that or was the sex it was the the toxic relationships whatever it was and when i decided to make a change and move away from that it got really lonely because i didn't have any understanding of any healthy understanding of what relationships in life should should look like until i started doing the work and then a shift happens where you start seeking out relationships based on love instead of need, right? And like it goes back to what Dr. Andrew was saying. Then your intentions are are formulating a universe universe that is better serving you, right? That makes sense. I love that yeah. you said love instead of need because I had written down listening to you guys all talk and I wrote down loneliness was living in a place where I expect emotional support from someone who can't or isn't emotionally available and that's when I'm you know looking for I need help or whatever that may be and it's just not there so I'm thinking of I'm living in a house that's I'm surrounded by people yet I still feel alone and that is because first I'm not emotionally healthy. So I'm looking, I'm, I'm fake first of all. So I'm not acting authentically. So anything that I'm getting in return isn't authentic is, is reinforcing 
a false narrative that I'm showing someone else. So I'm essentially lying to myself. So that alone leaves me feeling lonely. And then, um, if I'm giving that to everyone else, I'm receiving that. And where am I going to, if I'm looking for it externally, I'm never going to find it. And then Dr. Andrew, you, like you talked about, once you start healing, you start emitting this, it's coming from love, like Travis said, right? So I, I remember early on in, in recovery, when I started telling my truth, where I went from this place of like sad, lonely, not be, not feeling accepted or heard or any of that. And then love showed up and it was from other people in the recovery community. And it was like, we've been there. I hear you. I get you. And that's where I started learning. Like, that's what love was again. Like, that's what acceptance really is. And I don't have to be fake. I think outside of being authentic, I'm going to give myself loneliness just by putting on a mask. And, and I still do that to this day, not near as often as I did before sometimes. And I do it to keep myself comfortable because I'm going to avoid an uncomfortable situation. It's where the mask comes from. What am I, then I have to look at that. But loneliness, I think really ends up coming from lack of being authentic. I want to, you know, Travis, I love that you're on here and you don't have substance issues. You know, part of my, my stance I'm taking for the world is to stop focusing on behavior. You know, drinking alcohol is a behavior. Using drugs is a behavior. Over-exercising, overeating, under-eating, gambling, they're all behaviors. And if you really look at the behaviors, they're really quieting down an upstream thinking breakdown, a thinking pattern, thinking addictions, the I'm not good enough, I'm not lovables, I'm not important, I need to be right, I'm always wrong. You know, these are just, uh, to name a few, thinking patterns that we develop as children. And, you know, my, 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 my work really goes on, on childhood experience and how childhood experience shapes who we become as adults and how we think and perceive and interpret the world. And so much of our breakdowns in life occur through interpretation of circumstance. And I always say, which lenses am I wearing today that can tell you how I'll feel? Because again, at the end of the day, how I feel is on me, not on the world. You know, I interpret the world. So I love, I, I really, I really uh, love that you're, you're here having these conversations on a recovery mind frame, you know, and, and let's just get rid of this, this delineation between substances and mental health. Like it's all mental health, right? Like all of this is upstream thinking and emotional patterns. And if we were to focus as a world on thinking and emotional patterns, number one, we'd have a lot less loneliness. We'd have a lot more love for one another. Yeah. We'd have a lot more connection with one another and really love and connection in my mind is really, that's all we want as children. You know, the day we were born into this world, we just want love and connection with our parents and, and that's it. And so emotional sobriety and, and, and what we're speaking to here really brings us back into a space that we can all create to actually regain what we really just wanted as, you know, little one-year-olds or six-month-olds. So I don't know. This is, this is good stuff. 
what you're talking about there when we're when we're little we just want love and we just want connection right so i grew up with god bless them the most emotionally unavailable parents like ever they wouldn't you could use the word emotionally unavailable and they would have no idea what you were talking about completely incapable of real honest meaningful connection right wonderful people took really good care of me gave me a wonderful life but they just weren't capable of more. And so, you know, and like you're talking about, Dr. Andrew, you got all of these messages, right, as a child that I'm not good enough and I have to, and and I just strived for perfection and I strived for good enough and I was the overachiever because they said nice things to me and that made me feel loved, right? I'm sure that probably sounds familiar to a lot of people. But then you carry that and you carry that into adulthood and I'm surrounded by people who are emotionally unavailable and I don't even know any different. Because that's all I've ever experienced, right? So my husband, emotionally unavailable. My best friend, emotionally unavailable. I'm like, that's all I'm surrounded by everywhere. So it's no wonder I felt lonely like my whole life. I never felt seen. I never felt accepted. None of that. I just felt like I was hustling all the time for somebody to say something nice to me so I could feel loved. I had no idea what real connection or, or love felt like. And once I started understanding, like looking at, I always thought I was this big problem, right? I'm the problem. That That's why I can't feel happy. That's why I can't feel accepted or whatever. And I started realizing there's other people in my life that have issues too. Like I'm not the only problem. I'm not, not by any means am I saying I'm perfect, but I always just internalized it all and made it all my fault. And then that kept people shut out. I'd put up walls. I didn't want them to know how bad I was and how messed up I was, right? And just to be able to step back and, and acknowledge, okay, these people, they're, they've got some emotional stuff too. Like they might not be alcoholics, but they've got some stuff going on also. And it's not all me. And, and once you can see that, I don't know, that helped me let down some walls. And it also showed me that I needed to start seeking out people who were capable of emotional connection. I didn't even know that that those people existed until I was like 39 years old. <laughs> and my whole world opened up at that moment. It was just in finding the right people. You know, it's, it's I can use self-righteousness similar to how I used alcohol. You know, you don't have to be alcoholic to be addicted. You know, my, my whole stance is that we're all little thought addicts that really come from childhood and, and it operates at a subconscious level, just like substances, you know, and it's, it's fascinating to me because everyone, you know, kind of sparses that here's this person and this is my problems and that that's problems. If we just move upstream and really identify our thinking patterns, you know, there's our solution. You know, we can rewire the parts of our brains that got developed when we were two, three, four, five. The limbic system is very neuroplastic if you put the the effort in you know that's our memory and emotional center in the brain that's where all of these memories and emotions are stored and correlated and as a result of of doing the work that we do on a day-to-day -day, sometimes for me a minute-to-minute -minute basis i've rewired that portion of my brain that wants to keep me thinking i'm not good enough or i didn't do it right and it doesn't mean that i don't every once in a while get that feeling i absolutely get that feeling but nothing like it used to. And quite honestly, I spend more time laughing at myself today. And you could talk to my, my colleagues at work and they're like, oh, you did it again. Yes, you <laughs> did. 
<laughs> like, okay. But I'll tell you, I have a solution to the lot of the pain. A lot of the pain that you're seeing on a minute-to-minute basis in the United States, the world right now, I've got the solution. Emotional sobriety, that's it. That's the solution. Right. You just can't force anybody else to do it. That's the hard part. There's people in my life that I'm like, I just want a meaningful connection with you, but I can't go back and, and do the work for them. And sometimes that's just maddening, right? Urgency. You know, we those of us in recovery from substances, we had urgency. We were going to die. You know, it's a clear cut that substance, you know, alcoholics die from alcoholism, drug addicts die from drug addiction. I mean, it's, that's been proven. It's a fatal disease if left untreated. You know, if you, uh, if you live life simply being self-righteous or, or victim oriented, you know, you, you're not necessarily going to die from that. You'll just live disconnected and wonder why the world doesn't want to connect with you. And it's, you know, you can live your whole life that way. And we see it all the time. You know, so urgency is is very nice for those of us um, because it forced us to to do this work. And what a blessing it was for me, because my life today is full of love and connection. It's extraordinary, you know. And a lot of that has to do with with the willingness and the fortitude to to have some of the tough conversations and and really deep, dive deep into the soul of who Andrew really was and how he became who he is, and and really start to understand the the operating system that is my brain. It's a dangerous place to go sometimes. <laughs> Through that sense of urgency where I was able to face the fear of losing the friend that I thought I had, which was alcohol, and seeing what was beyond that. There was, you know, getting the help, getting over the fear of asking for help and then getting over the fear of being able to accept it. I think that's that was even harder than because that's where pride really comes in. I think for me is accepting that help, really not knowing I'm vulnerable to whatever you're telling me because I really don't know or don't have any confidence in that. But um, you talk about the victim mentality and the self righteousness; they both lead to loneliness too they both push people away. One one is very vacuum-oriented for emotional energy, and the other one is very brutish and, and, and forceful. Both are uh, ways to protect yourself from the outside world that actually harm us. I, I, I know for me, I, I think that there is a lot of, power in the idea of surrender and opening up with with vulnerability opening up yourself to the possibility that you have to grieve the loss of the person that you were yeah right you know like from early childhood and i love that dr andrew talked about how these things come from early childhood and I, like i know just for me like i was this little kid who like you julie god bless both my parents I got the message somewhere that I wasn't good enough, some somewhere in there, and I, I continue to dive into that. But um, it's my train of thought. You're gonna have to edit this out. Um, though I learned, I, I how do I want to say this? I started intellectualizing that sort of shadow that uh, you're not good enough mentality throughout life. I became addicted to my own thoughts. So this is where my 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 
anxiety, depression, all of it came from. And that was my foundation of my entire existence. So that jump from, from there, my entire foundation, the home that I built, I had to make peace with the fact that I was going to burn it down and, and, and start over, you know, and there's a grieving process with that also. Something that I, I, I still do to this day, even seven years later, I started. Live in a self-created chaos. And if you're a victim of it, then it's the world's created chaos that has put me in this position. Either way, I'm left alone. I'm left feeling alone. And, and to get out of that, everyone's vulnerability, like telling as scary as it freaking is telling the truth and telling, and I wrote this down not too long ago. If I tell you a lie, then I'm lying to myself and I hate it when I'm lied to but I'm already putting myself on an island when I'm doing that. And so I'm putting myself back in this spot where I don't want to be. And if anything now, after being in this journey for, for this long, I like, when I lie, I get no enjoyment out of it at all. It literally, there's, there's a pain there now and it hurts. And, and because I can feel the abandonment of myself in it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I do. So I am, I think Steve was the one who talked about masks, right? And putting on all these masks and trying to be somebody that you're not. And I've worked so hard to shed those. And it's taken so much work and so much courage and so much reflection and, and all of that to shed those. I'll walk into certain situations and like I can feel myself, you know, starting to to hype up and 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 pretend to be somebody I'm not. I'll get nervous. I'll walk into like a meeting, you know, and I feel like everybody's better than me or more important than me. And I can feel myself start to like put on the mask and start talking differently and acting differently. And it it's so uncomfortable now. Like that used to be natural for me. I could just, I was a chameleon, right? And it, depending on what situation I was in, I could be exactly what they needed me to be. And it felt natural. Now it feels so unnatural. It's like it's it's uncomfortable. Like my chest gets tight, and I it, like my skin feels all crawly because I hate being somebody that I'm not now, you know. And and again, that that all goes back to loneliness. And that if we're not ourselves, we're never going to sh- to to get rid of the loneliness. We're never going to connect. But yeah, it's just it's funny how hard I worked for that, and now it's so uncomfortable when I can feel it happening. I have to say it's extremely refreshing to to have individuals that are speaking to all these thinking addictions. I love that, Travis. That's my that's the stance I'm taking for the world. That we're all we're all little thought addicts. And you know, Julie, speaking to your physiology that you feel, you know, really becoming you know, one of the greatest gifts of emotional sobriety and the stuff um, the work that I do is is knowing I call it like the trigger phenomenon is that I can feel I, 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 these thinking breakdowns, these, these thinking patterns, I don't even know I'm doing it until I feel it first. And so really, you know, we talk about mindfulness and recovery, mindfulness and understanding our physiology and, and what our, our bodies are actually telling us Our my, my, uh, 
fight or flight response. My sympathetic nervous system will tell me, you know, before I even access the thought that I'm in a situation, like you're saying, you're in a meeting and you're about to do X and Y and you start to feel that feeling like that, that, that little, to me, that's the little signal that goes off. And, and, and what I get to do with that today is I don't, I don't react the way I used to. You know, a lot of this is response. It's it's calculated. It involves the front part of the brain, which allows me to think through complex situations. Mm. You know, my re- my reactive circuit's really helpful if I'm getting chased by a bear. But there's not a lot of bears, although I do live in New Hampshire, so every once in a while you wonder. You know, so my the cavemen in me, you know, they they definitely benefited more from the reactive circuit than I do, and and yet, you know, my my ability to feel that feeling. And know that I'm accessing the thinking pattern so that I can actually make a real calculated decision is, or choice, I like the word choice, you know, is so, so much healthier for this guy today, you know, and, and it, and it's allowed me to connect with others and communicate in a manner that brings about connection with others, you know, in the older days and my, my sick, sick days, you know, I was communicating a manner where people didn't want to be around me. It, and today I feel like what this work has done for me is it has allowed me to communicate in a manner that brings people together and kind of affects changes that are healthy for the group and the individual. So self and other, which is kind of a win-win, you know, if I can create space for others to get well and I get well, geez, that's perfect. And I think about this with my family. You know, Julie, you talk about your husband. You know, my wife does this work with me. She's not a substance misuser, but she does this work with me. I've got two teenagers in the house that are that are doing this work at a sometimes subconscious level, you know, but they're doing it. You hear, you hear it. And, you know, you see a 16-year-old girl um, go through a conflict at school in an emotionally sober mind frame, and it's like, wow. And there it is. And I'm going to say one more thing about our parents, you know. This all comes from, most of this comes from childhood. And the reality is, is like my parents were loving me when they said I could do better, you know? And that was a hard pill for me to swallow because for many years I anchored on that victim kind of mentality that I was wronged because my parents were too tough on me. You know, my parents loved me the way they were loved. And when I started to look at it through those lenses, I was like, wow. And now I actually, to be honestly, you talk about your parents, Julie, I have empathy for my parents, you know, when I hear that they don't know how to connect emotionally. And then actually I want to say, how can I create space to help you connect with mom? You know, so, and, and, you know, again, it's me giving answers or telling them how to do it, but it's, it's fascinating. So, yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And, and. I think that can go one of two ways, right? I could blame them and I could be upset and I could be like, you know, look what happened to me. But we all show up and in, in, and do the best we can with what we have, right? And as long as we recognize that in our parents, I mean, I absolutely have compassion and empathy for for where my parents, you know, were and what how they grew up and, and everything. But yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, I do, I have a 16-year-old daughter also. So I'm on the same roller coaster that you're on. But yeah, it's it's interesting. There are days where I'm like, look how much she has learned from my journey. There are other days where I'm like, she's obviously not learned a thing. But, you know, it's the <laughs> one <a> day. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, that's amazing that we're able to hopefully affect positive change even in, in the generations coming up. Maybe they won't experience all of this stuff the way that we have. Nature and nurture, 
you know, when I started this journey, I really thought everything was genetic. And as I've evolved in my own recovery, I've seen what nurture, you know, how we raise our children, what they're exposed to, what we were raised like is such a huge predictor of certain behaviors in the future, um, problematic ones, adaptive ones, however you want to look at it. And so this is where the generational curse can be severed, you know, by us being emotionally well and available. And as I like to say, emotionally sober, now I can create the next generation of emotionally sober and they can then go ahead and, and continue that. Um, so the paradigm has shifted and it's no longer about, you know, what it was like in the past. It's like, what does the future look like? How bright is it going to be? Cause it's already looking pretty awesome. This is so refreshing. You guys, this makes my, my heart swell. I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. You know, it's, it's like you guys, I, I, I go through a similar process where, you know, I was my, my, how do I want to call it? My injured connection with my father, um, was, was always tough. I always struggled to connect with him and when we look at it generally, generationally, um, you know, his, his father fought in Vietnam, saw a ton of people die, uh, grew up abused as a child. My grandmother grew up very poor in the segregated South. He didn't really have a chance to be an emotionally sober, mature parent that maybe I needed. And I had an amazing conversation with one of our coaches at CCAR who had a very similar story with her mother. And she said, Everything shifted when I entered recovery because, you know, I found humility and humility creates space for connection to exist. So what do I do when I'm hurt by my mother? I just love her anyway. I'd be the parent that she needed when she was a child. So I think in the spirit of being better parents for the generations that are coming, right, we can also model that and how we take our care of our parents with the things that they didn't learn, right? I think the generational curse can be healed in both directions, personally. It but. can. A friend of ours says you heal seven generations by healing yourself. And by necessity, you've come to this place where connection becomes necessary because you start finding who you are and, and, and living true to it. And then you find the people that you connect with. And once you find connection, like true, authentic, real connection, you can't go back. It's not a, it's, it's not a place where you can venture back to. If I venture back to that place, I venture back to a whole bunch of negative thought patterns and, and addictions. Like Dr. Andrew is saying, that kept me sick to begin with. And so I've got to stay here. And I love that you said, like, you can look back at it with compassion now because you've grown a sense of self-worth enough to understand that it's not about you. It's about them. And I am me and I'm cool with who I am. And with that humility, you can create that space of love because you found it within. And with that, I think I'm just going to wrap this up. It's basically summed up really good. I think you guys were absolutely amazing. This was phenomenal, guys. You talked about early in recovery or pre-recovery where you had enabling friendships and codependent friendships that 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 really helped 
you they were great for you in in active addiction because they just fueled your need to get the next the next drink or whatever that may be that negative thought pattern um i mentioned loneliness was living in that place with basically you we all shared examples of it the main one was emotionally unavailable parents right and and stemming from childhood and then when you grow up you kind of look for those same things you end up still in that emotionally unavailable state without really growing up dr andrew you talked about your five-year-old self and really understanding how that is affecting you today lack of authenticity and finding finding and showing yourself removing the masks stop being the chameleon listening to ourselves and connecting with others is basically the key to this whole thing i want to say thank you travis thank you dr andrew for spending your time with us tonight sharing your thoughts and your experiences with us and i'm going to finish this with a merry christmas to all our listeners I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for being on this recovery journey with us. With 2024 just around the corner, we want to send you hope for a wonderful, sober new year.